It's good to see everybody tonight. We are going to continue this evening with uh, what I started last week on the video. I'm going to let you watch about 20, 20 minutes of that, and then I am going to do a recap very quickly, and then I'm going to move on and start covering the next session. Now, the, the video uh, portion you're going to see tonight is new. You've not seen uh, this last segment of it, so I don't want to confuse you there. Um, it's the last segment of what was started last week that you didn't have time to get to. Uh, but I, th- I think since I did it in the video format, I'll just continue with that. Uh, and then I will come up here and we'll begin going over our notes for tonight. And then if we have time this evening at the close, which I kind of seriously doubt that we will, but there's another brief video that I want you to watch from Ligonier Ministries, if we have time for that. But uh, let's, let's start tonight thinking about where we have been talking about uh, the church and, of course, where uh, Jesus says what he says to uh, Simon Peter. If you want to find uh, Matthew chapter 16... Matthew chapter 16, and uh, in verse 13 it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Let me, let me wait on you a minute. I'm just jumping right on ahead. Caesarea Philippi was a very uh, pagan area. Uh, it was an area in the northern reaches of Israel that had given itself over to idol worship. And have you ever seen in Greek mythology the image of the, the goat with the head of a man? You've seen that? Pan, P-A-N, uh, was one of the false gods worshipped at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus took his disciples to a place like that and said... Who do men say that I am? I think it's significant that he carried them there. Carried them to an area of idol worship. And said, what do you think about me? In verse 13 it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Christ promised to build and bless his church, and that he would use our confession to do so, that he would use our confession to build his church. 
What we want to see tonight on the video will continue where you stopped off last week was uh, looking at the ordinances. In the video last week, talked about baptism. Tonight's going to uh, pick up talking about the Lord's Supper. And then after the Lord's Supper, we're going to talk about the leadership of the church. Uh, and then we're also uh, going to talk about the message of the church, which is the Bible that gives us our instructions for how we organize and what we're to do. And uh, then we're also going to talk about the fact that the church is uh, one, it's holy, it's universal, it's apostolic. What do these things mean? Uh, So let's pick up with that. And uh, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to get the video started. And uh, we will go from there. Like I say, it's about, it's roughly about 20 minutes. And at the close of that is when I'll jump back up here and we'll get going again. Okay, let's see if we can't maybe uh, bite the bullet here and get this last segment in, in in that 20 minute window. We might be kind of close on that, but bear with me. Uh, When we talk about the Lord's Supper, Once again, we see a picture of the gospel. And what did Paul say about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11? He said, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, what is it that we do? He said, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, Paul was saying there's a real proclamation of the gospel in the observance of the Lord's Supper. We're saying to to one another and any unbelievers who may be witnessing the rest of the church uh, partake. Now, unbelievers aren't supposed to partake, but if unbelievers are there watching us, uh, what what are we saying to unbelievers and what are we saying to one another as we partake of the Lord's Supper? We're saying that this is our only hope of salvation. Salvation is not found in us. It's not found in anything that we've done. Salvation is only found in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the Lord's Supper, what we're emphasizing is Christ's death on the cross for us, that his body was pierced and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's the proclamation that we're giving. And folks, it's also a reminder to us every time we partake of it. It's like just kind of reinforcing uh, in our own minds where our hope lies. It lies in Christ. It's not in us. It's in Christ. Now, folks, when we come to the Lord's table as believers, we also need to examine our own hearts. Not only should unbelievers not partake with us, but we need to be careful that we're right with the Lord. Paul said to the Corinthians that they were coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And he said, because of that, some of you are sick and some of you have even died because they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so we need to examine ourselves. Paul says, judge yourselves so that you won't be judged by God. 
Now, there's no prescribed set number of times given as to how often we should observe the Lord's Supper. My conviction is we probably don't observe the Lord's Supper enough. In most of our churches, we probably only observe it once a quarter. Some churches don't even do it once a quarter. They may only do it one or two times a year. And so I think, if anything, we need to do it more often. And, and again, we need to remember every time we do it, we're proclaiming the gospel. When we read the early chapters of the book of Acts, we, we get the impression that they probably observed the Lord's Supper every time they met together. But again, whether or not that's true, I, I do think we probably don't observe the Lord's Supper enough. Now, I want to I mention to you that on the Lord's Supper is where we would break ranks with Roman Catholics. For the Roman Catholic, they affirm something called transubstantiation. What are they saying uh, happens in the Lord's Supper? What they're saying is that when, if you've ever been to a, a Catholic Mass, when the, when the priest takes the elements, and he, he probably, you probably see him turn his back to the congregation, and he holds the elements up, the, the, the bread and the wine, they, they use real wine, we use grape juice, but... They'll hold the wine up and the bread up and, and they're asking God's blessing on the elements. In transubstantiation, the Roman Catholic believes that in that moment when they're holding the elements up, asking for God's blessing, the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. The wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. You're not just talking about bread and wine anymore. You're talking literally about the body and blood of Christ. And they're partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Uh, It's how they would interpret also John chapter 6 when Jesus talked about drinking his blood and, and eating his flesh. Again, it's called transubstantiation. Now, Protestants don't see scriptural justification for this. Now, Lutherans kind of, they take a little different view of transubstantiation. They hold to what is known as consubstantiation consubstantiation, uh, C-O-N, and then subs, uh, substantiation, consubstantiation. They don't believe that the elements literally become the body and the blood of Jesus, but they do believe that the real presence of Christ is is around the elements, around, above, below the elements. That 
there, there's a real element of Christ, his body and his blood, that it is around the elements. Again, the elements don't become that as in Roman Catholicism, but the real presence of Christ is literally around, above, and below the elements. Consubstantiation, that the real presence of Christ is there in a, in a mystical way or a spiritual way. Uh, here again, like I say, if you want to read uh, more on the Lord's Supper, I commend this book to you, The Lord's Supper, uh, Dr. Thomas Schreiner. Now, the Baptist view and other Protestants, <clears throat> we, don't, we don't hold a transubstantiation or consubstantiation. We believe that the bread is just that. It's bread. The grape juice is just that. It's grape juice. Every time we meet together and have the Lord's Supper, it's bread and it's grape juice. And, and it's still bread, still grape juice. That's all the elements are. They don't become something else. Rather, the elements are symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. And so that when we partake of the bread and the juice, we're, we're simply remembering Christ's death for us that Christ's body was pierced, his blood was shed. We do this in remembrance of him. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so again, the elements don't become anything that they're not. They remain bread and, and grape juice. So baptism and the Lord's Supper the two ordinances of the church where we see the gospel. Again, we, we read the gospel, we preach the gospel, we pray the gospel, we sing the gospel, and we see the gospel. Now, let's move on to talk about the leadership of the church. The leadership of the church. I mentioned before how Baptists hold to, to two offices in the church, pastor and deacon. Let's read a little bit more about this. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, uh, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience 
and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Then in verse 12, he says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now this brings up a question. When we talk about pastors and deacons, who can be a pastor? Who can be a deacon? Now, folks, what makes the pastoral epistles so very important on this issue is because other than the pastorals, we really do not have a lot of instruction in the New Testament for church leaders and their qualifications. That makes the pastorals very important to this discussion. Now, let me say up front also, thank God for the role of women in the church. And I mean that. Where in the world would the church today be without godly women? Men oftentimes... Women in our churches have stepped up to the plate and done things when the men simply would not or did not. So thank God for women in the church. Uh, the church would be far lesser without women. And let's remember, women were the first ones that Christ appeared to after he was raised from the dead. And what did the angel tell the women? Go and tell the men. Go and tell his disciples. So again, thank God for the role of women in the church. Let me also preface what I'm about to say by indicating that it's somewhat of a mystery to us why God has done things the way he has. This should not surprise us, though. He's a purposeful God who always does the right thing in the right way. He always does the right thing in the right way. He is sovereign God, and he makes no mistakes. I certainly hope that no one would ever think that they can put God on trial for what he does. To think that we can put God on trial, that would, be a, that would be a foolish thing to do. It would be an arrogant thing to do. He's God, we're not. Now, with that said, we have to admit that for reasons unknown to us, 1 Timothy 3 and other passages like it reserve the role of pastor and deacon to men. If you'll read your Baptist Faith and Message doctrinal statement, Baptist Faith and Message 2000, you'll, you'll see this affirmed in here that the, the offices in the church of pastors and deacons are reserved for men. Now, why do we say that? We say that because all of the adjectives that are used in 1 Timothy 3, the adjectives, the, the qualifications given for both the pastors and the deacons, all of the qualifications are in the masculine. Not only are they in the masculine, 
But on top of that, what does Paul say about the pastor and the deacon both? Let them be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Obviously a, a role that a woman can't fulfill. So all of the descriptive terms about the qualifications are in the masculine. And then he says, let them be the husband of one wife. That kind of settles the issue. Sometimes people will say, but wasn't that only a cultural thing for Paul's world? Uh, in the first century world, folks, actually, that's the argument that the Apostle Paul is pointing out that he's not making. If you drop back to chapter 2 in 1 Timothy where he talks about the roles of men and women, uh, he bases, when he says uh, a woman's not to have authority over a man in the church, uh, let her learn in quiet submission at home, actually he doesn't use culture as the reason behind his argument, he uses the created order. The fact that Adam was created first and then Eve. Equal in creation, but he says Adam was created first and then Eve. And he uses that creation model as being the basis for his argument. And creation model transcends all cultures. And so again, Paul is not basing male leadership on, on a first century world of the church that in the, in the Greco-Roman society, he's basing it on creation that transcends all cultures. So again, for whatever reason, we have to admit that God has reserved the roles of, of pastors and deacons for men. Now, if we ignore that or go against it, I, I want you to understand that we're having to do so based on our own authority. Churches that ignore this pattern that 1 Timothy 3 is talking about, they're having to move out from underneath God's authority that he gives in his word, and they're having to venture out on their own authority. And that's a, that's a place and a position I don't think we should find ourselves in. I, I think it'd be very unwise, very unwise to move out from underneath the authority of God's word in, in that regard. Uh, again, we don't understand why God's done it this way, but when we come to passages like 1 Timothy 3, there's little doubt that, I mean, this is what God is teaching us, and I think we have to leave those reasons to God. Now, sometimes people will appeal to somebody like Phoebe to try to argue against this. They'll say, but in the book of Romans, for example, it is, is not Phoebe uh, described as a deacon in the church? I think there's a very simple explanation for that. Uh, we find in the New Testament that all believers are referred to as deacons, a diaconos. And, and then there's an official role of a deacon. So what I'm saying is the word for deacon in the New Testament is used unofficially of all believers 
and then officially an official office in the church for those men who are described in 1 Timothy chapter 3. When I read about Phoebe, I, I think it's just talking about Phoebe being a deacon in the sense that all of us are to be a deacon. The unofficial sense of the word deacon, that we are all to be servants. A diakonos was somebody who was a servant of the church. Any born-again believer is to be a diakonos in that sense. We're to be a servant of the church. And so I think that's, my personal view is that's what's being communicated about Phoebe. Now, again, talking about the mystery in all this, there is mystery to it. Because I think in many ways, I think in many ways, women would probably be better pastors as far as the nurturing role. Uh, women are better nurturers than men are. So, or they tend to be anyway. So when it comes to nurturing the flock, shepherding the flock and giving care for the flock, quite frankly, I think women would probably do that better than men. They, they have a compassionate, caring, nurturing heart. But again, God has said that men are to be in that role. So I think it's something that we have to leave with the Lord. Now, finally today, I want us to talk about the mission of the church. And Am I on? Okay, got it. Let's, uh, let's drop back and talk about this a little bit more. Uh, something that goes with transubstantiation in uh, Roman Catholic life is what is referred to as sarsidotalism. Is that a term that anybody recognizes? Sarsidotalism. Sarsidotalism, because in, in this it says when the, when the priest turns and holds the elements up and asks God's blessing on them, in that moment is when the Catholics believe the, the wine becomes literally the blood of Christ, the bread becomes literally the body of Christ. And sarsidotalism is their position that it has to be a legitimate priest who asks that blessing. Has to be a legitimate ordained priest in Roman Catholicism that, offer, that holds the elements up and blesses the elements so that transubstantiation will take place. So the fact that it has to be a legitimate ordained priest in the Roman Catholic system, that's known as sarsidotalism. Uh, Zwingli, Eurek Zwingli, was one of the reformers. You had, uh, Martin Luther, you had men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, many other reformers. But Zwingli was one that Baptists have followed his view that the Lord's Supper is the memorial. The memorial. We do this in remembrance of him. So, so we go after the, the Zwinglian model. So uh, again, transubstantiation actually becomes... That's why, too, originally uh, 
I guess still in traditional Roman Catholic circles, only the priest will partake of the wine. They don't want to pass it out to the laity because if they pass it out to the laity, somebody may spill it. And if you spill it, you have spilled literally the blood of Christ to be trampled underfoot. And so only the priest will partake uh, of the wine. Uh, consubstantiation again that, that Christ is, is he, he's around, above, underneath the elements in a special mystical way. Uh, Zwinglian Memorial. Now, uh, as we talk about the uh, ordinances of the church like that, let me bring up one other thing that I, Ed, I believe it was you that made reference to it last time. Uh, sacraments. Why, why do in some circles they refer to the uh, ordinances as sacraments and they have a lot more of them? How many, how many sacraments are there? Seven. Seven. Exactly. A, a sacrament, they, they believe the, the grace of God, the vehicle for the grace of God coming to you is actually through the sacrament. And that's why it's so serious in Roman Catholic circles to be excommunicated from the church. Because if you are excommunicated from the church, you are not able to take part in these sacraments. And their view is if you can't take part in the sacraments, what are you cut off from? You're cut off from God's grace. So that's why excommunication is such a big deal to a Catholic. Uh, and they believe it can, it can put them in such dire jeopardy. But again, the view of the sacrament, an ordinance is more of, it's a picture of the gospel, an ordinance. It's something we do to preach the gospel through that visual reminder. A sacrament is actually the grace of God coming to you through that act that is performed. There's seven sacraments. Uh, baptism. Secondly, there's penance or confession. Baptism. Penance would be the second one or confession. Third would be Holy Communion. Fourth would be Confirmation. Fifth would be Marriage. Sixth would be Holy Orders. Holy orders, the, the call to the ministry and your assignment, holy orders. And then seventh, anointing the sick. Baptism, penance, holy communion, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, and anointing the sick. Did I go too fast? Uh, anointing the sick. I need to repeat those. I'll repeat them. 
Anybody need me to repeat them? No? Everybody got them? Yes. Well, certainly in, in, in purgatory is where they believe that, that uh, and by the way, purgatory is not a biblical doctrine. But purgatory is where you do have to finish paying for your sins. Uh, and so, certainly if you mess up one of these, yeah, you've got to spend some more time in purgatory. Uh, they probably do because they had set times, uh, you know, when uh, uh, John Tetzel was selling the indulgences. Uh, you know, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. They were building St. Peter's in Rome. And uh, he came into town. That's what really upset Martin Luther. John Tetzel, he was a masterful fundraiser. And the Pope sent him around to raise money. And the uh, indul- selling of, of indulgences was you could, you could buy an indulgence, uh, a document that would get your loved ones out of purgatory sooner. And the jingle was when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And there were set numbers of years that you could deliver your loved one out of purgatory. Because you, you certainly don't want to leave your dear mother in purgatory. You want to get her on to heaven as quickly as possible. So, anyway, uh, that, as you can see, that's certainly one thing that made Luther, that, that was kind of the icing on the cake, that he was sort of like enough is enough. But, but anyway... Uh, any, any more questions about that before I move on? Yes. Uh-huh. See, the great question because we would say the continuing mass, the mass in, in Catholic circles. Now, you go on some of their websites and you read some of their explanations and they'll claim that we don't fully understand what they're doing. But yes, we would say uh, they're subjecting Christ to being crucified and suffering all over again. The ongoing mass. Whereas Christ said, it is finished. Um, so yes, we, I think you've, you've hit, you grew up, okay. Like I say, they, uh, if you go on some of the websites about transubstantiation, they try to explain it away why Protestants haven't quite caught everything they're doing. But I guess you can explain anything away. But anyway. Did anybody else in here grow up Catholic? Okay. Oh, certainly that Christ is very much at work. And it, it's just that we don't think that Christ in some way is in the elements. The, the bread stays bread. The, the juice stays juice. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
And it's very important worship because as I mentioned on the tape, uh, we are proclaiming to one another and to the unbelieving world, if any unbelievers are among us, we're proclaiming what is the foundation of our gospel hope when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's like we're, we're affirming. Uh, it's a testimony to the body of Christ over and over again. This is where the hope of our salvation lies. It's not in anything that I've done. It's not in any type of meritorious work. It's, it's in the work of Christ and only the work of Christ. I'm sorry, you think of... Sure, sure. Uh, and I do think probably, if anything, we need to observe the Lord's Supper more. Generally, by the church constitution. <laughs> In our constitution, it says we'll observe, we will observe it quarterly. Um, nothing to hinder us from doing it more often. And like I say, I think, I think that the Lord's Supper is a chance for you to preach the gospel all over again to yourself. You see what I'm saying by that? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It's a reaffirmation all over again. Christ is my hope. He's my only hope. Sure, sure. It, it might be an invitation to, to have a, a deacon or a pastoral staff member just say, is there something we can pray with you about? Or an observant deacon who notices somebody that repeatedly doesn't partake. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to be Right. Right. And you know, Paul does warn the church in 1 Corinthians 11 that members of the church had dare not partake in an unworthy manner. He says, that's why some of you are sick and why some of you sleep. And sleep is a metaphor there for what? Death. Some of you are sick and some of you have died uh, because you've, you've partaken in an unworthy manner. Uh, and you've incurred the Lord's judgment. And that's why he goes on in that same passage to say you need to judge yourself so that the Lord doesn't judge you. Better to judge myself than have the Lord do so. Uh, anything else on that? Okay. Okay. 
Right. Yeah. The, the problem with that, the specific problem with that, from our vantage point of view, would be what they do with Mary. That Mary is a co-redemptress. You know, we would say Christ is our only redeemer. It'd say, no, it's a joint effort. It's Christ and Mary. She's co-redemptress. This goes back to the immaculate conception of Mary. Uh, They've attributed uh, a sinless life to her as well. But that's why it, it, it all ties together in their theology because, you know, pain and childbirth was a result of what? The curse. Well, if Mary is sinless, then she couldn't have had pain in childbirth because that would have been a sign that she was sinful. This is their doctrine, not ours. I want you to understand that, Okay. And so at the time of delivery, Christ mysteriously passed through the the uterus and the abdominal wall. He was not born through the birth canal. Because born through the birth canal, she would have been in pain, which was part of the curse, which would indicate that she was a sinner. And she's sinless in their system, so something else had to happen. And they say, unless, if that sounds so strange to you, even Protestants, they would say, believe that in the upper room after the resurrection, Christ suddenly appeared to his disciples. So they'd say the birth of Christ was that way. He, you know, he's in Mary, and then, boom, all of a sudden he's not in Mary. He's passed through the uterus without being born in the normal and natural way. And they get all of this from... uh, um, the, the Gospel of James, a mid-second century gospel that is not one of our canonical gospels. But a lot of this, what they get related to Mary, comes out of, out of the Gospel of James. And so that's why, they, you know, that's why they pray to Mary, and that's on the rosary beads and all that kind of stuff. So, Yes, correct. Right, they believe that Mary was raised, and this, folks, this is not a slam. I'm not meaning slam the Catholics, just showing you how, how different our belief system is. And how dangerous it is, how dangerous I think it is, when you venture out into non-biblical documents to have as your basis of beliefs. When you venture into non-biblical documents, you can get into a little bit of anything. 
And that's what the Catholics have done. They've ventured into non-biblical documents. Um, but in, in the Gospel of James, uh, Mary was raised in the temple like Samuel in the Old Testament. She was raised in the temple. Joseph was much older. His wife had died. He had all these other children with his first wife. The temple leaders came to him and said, James, we've got a girl here that's committed to always be a temple virgin. Marry her, keep her a virgin. He was an older man. He said, I don't really care about intimacy. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll marry her and keep her a virgin. And so the siblings of Jesus, the half-brothers of Jesus, that, that we would say Mary and Joseph went on to have a normal marriage and other half-siblings... The Catholics say, no, these siblings were actually of Joseph and his first wife. So it's, it's a very different belief system. But Mary is co-redemptress with Christ. And that even as we pray to the Father through the Son, the way to get to a son's heart, appeal to his mother, that the mother would intercede to the Son. So anyway, very different. Yes. Their their whole practice carries with it different connotations. Um Because of, of what they believe the elements become. Uh, and so you don't just throw them out. Uh, because again, they do, at least in this anyway. I can't, I, good question on the Lutherans. You, you've stumped me there. I'm not sure what they would do there. Uh, but difference in, in, of course, how they would fence and, and we would. But good question. I'll have to double check on the Lutherans more on that. Okay. Uh, any questions from last week? The Episcopal system, the Presbyterian system, Congregational system? Anything tonight that he mentioned or that, that I mentioned on the... Uh, video on leadership. Yes. The Mia Ganuka Sandra, the one woman man. In the Greek text, it's literally a one woman man. Uh, there's five different views of that down through church history. Uh, and I can't promise you that we get it right. And let me explain what I mean by that. The, a deacon or a pastor being the husband of one woman. Uh, obviously, it would rule out polygamy, right? Which, by the way, it's assumed that that was the biggie in the Roman first century world. Actually, it wasn't they had a Roman civil law against it. 
Did it happen? Sure. Just like we have civil law against it. But does it happen? If you go out Salt Lake City or somewhere, you could find it, right? But still, polygamy is not the issue that a lot, a lot of people today will say, oh, that's an easy one. That just referred to polygamy. Oh, well, it does, but it's not that easy. Another is that if your wife dies and you remarry, you're no longer a one-woman man. Well, on, on the basis of Romans chapter 7, we would not affirm that because Paul makes it very clear as chapter 7 opens up that if a woman's husband dies and she marries another, she can do so or a husband can do so. If his wife dies, remarry without any stigma of remarriage or adultery or anything. Uh, that first bond is dissolved without the stigma of adultery. So we, we wouldn't say it referred to that. Another view has been that it, it means that you have to be married. A pastor or a deacon has to be married. He has to be the Mia Gnukasandra, the one woman man. If that's the case though, not even the Apostle Paul himself would have qualified and he commended singleness for those who could live single. Uh, fourth view is rules out divorce. A divorced man can't serve. The fifth way emphasizes, the emphasis is on Mia, one. He's faithful to his one wife. Exegetically, as John MacArthur would tell us, hands down, that, that is the strongest position. He's faithful to his one wife. What about divorce? I think maybe we have missed the boat slightly on that. Now, I'm not trying to change anything because I know... I know I, how some people feel strongly about it. So don't misunderstand me, anybody. Uh, but let me give you, for instance, we had a man in our church, he and his wife moved away in recent years, moved to another state. One of the finest examples in a Christian gentleman in the church we had. Been married to his current wife uh, going on 45 years now. Uh, he had gone to Vietnam as a as an 18-year-old kid. Got married, got straight on the ship, went to Vietnam, came back after a year or two. His wife had left him and taken up with another man and actually married this other man. He met his current wife, has been married to her 45 years. The way we do it, he's not eligible to be a deacon. I do question the wisdom of that. I mean, if, if I named who this was, you'd say that was a, a giant of a man in Christian faith, an example in our church. I'm not sure in cases like that, somebody in that situation should be ruled out. 
the divorce is kind of a sticky thing. Right. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a man who's gone off to war as an 18-year-old kid can't come back in his wife's le- and and the wife wouldn't come back to him. Um, and 45 years with current wife. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure we're doing right by ruling him out. Uh, but as I've told these men, as I've said, even though you may have a good case, you will be an offense to somebody if you're made a deacon. You will be an offense. And you will become a stumbling block. And you can serve in a thousand other places. Uh, You can still do the work of being a deacon, serve in a thousand other places without having the title. So that's what I recommend they do. Sure. Yeah. Exegetically, if we get into no other elements, just the strength of the phrase in the Greek. A man who is faithful to one woman. Okay. Anything else before we move on? I'm sorry, Jerry, I can't hear you. We have never let that be an issue if she was biblically divorced because the scripture doesn't say anything about that. If it's a man who's up for deacon, his wife was formerly married, she was divorced, her husband cheated on her or something. Because of the silence of scripture, we've, we've, we've let that man's name go forward before One wife out of, boy, now that's, that opens the door for anything, doesn't it? One wife at a time. <laughs> Serial polygamy. <laughs> but ladies, let me say to you, I mean it, just like I said on video tonight, I mean it. I, you know, it is a mystery to us. Uh, why? The roles of pastor and deacon, why that in Scripture is reserved for men. It is. All You read 1 Timothy 3 and all of the adjectives. Let the man be this, 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 this. All of them are masculine. All the, the adjectives, they're all masculine forms. And then it says a one-woman man. It's very clear that, that the pastorals, being First and Second Timothy and Titus are saying the role of pastor and deacon is reserved for men. I do think women would be better pastors in some sense because they're more nurturing. But be that as it may, the scripture teaches that the role of a pastor or deacon is to be reserved for a man. 
Uh, and it is on 1 Timothy 2. Paul bases it on creation, not on culture. And creation transcends all cultures. Sure, sure. Okay, uh, wow, do I dare even go further? What I want to get into tonight, uh, I was going to, we were going to go over the Baptist faith and message on the, on the church, and then also uh, the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. And then we were going to talk about um, in the church, we do have a guide, an infallible guide, which is the Bible, meaning anything can't go. Uh, then I was going to talk about the mission of the church and then the attributes of the church being one and holy and universal and apostolic. And what do those terms mean? So that's an hour-long discussion in and of itself. So maybe we ought to just break there. Yes. Uh huh. That is a great, great point. There are some men in churches who have only been married one time, and they're still only married one time, but they're not one-woman men. They're flirtatious uh, and just, you know, eyeballing other women all the time, and they're not qualified they should not be qualified. Okay, what else? Mm hmm. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. Actually, um, you get the impression from the early chapters of the book of Acts that every time they came together to worship, observance of the Lord's Supper was part of their worship. 
is we're not, that's the impression we get. We're told that implicitly, not explicitly. Um, and that comes, that plays into singing the word, praying the word, reading the word, preaching the word, and seeing the word. That a worship service, if it has all of those five elements in it, it's, it's going to be bi- biblically faithful. And at most, most Sundays, we, we, do, we do four of the five. Um, so I think, if anything, the argument is we need to do it more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the challenge in doing the Lord's Supper more often, uh, keeping it fresh. Because you can't be too creative in the sense that you distance yourself from what it actually means. And yet there almost needs to be a certain amount of creativity to keep it fresh. So there's a delicate line to walk there if that makes sense. Okay. Let's uh let's close.